0: for me a sure sign that i am headed to burnout and i need to do something different is when i start seeing problems instead of people
1: welcome to the chickmunks podcast where we explore contemplative christianity from a feminine perspective i'm your host heather lawrence let's get to it hey chickmunks Welcome back. I have a conversation for you today between me and the Reverend Dr. Sarah Kai Price, whom I'll introduce to you in just a second. Before I do, though, I wanted to address the intro to this podcast. In it, I say where we explore contemplative Christianity from a feminine voice and perspective. It actually used to say female In some of the earlier episodes, you'll notice that, and I changed it because um, I didn't want to contribute to a false binary, Um, and I feel like masculine and feminine language kind of always does that anyway, but I do consider it part of my life's calling to lift up and honor the feminine aspects of reality that have been silenced and kept in the dark from patriarchal institutions for millennia. So that's not really the part that I wanted to even talk about. The words contemplative Christianity were what struck me when I was listening to the intro as I finish up this episode to share with you all. And the words contemplative Christianity were what I chose a couple of years ago to describe where I found myself landing in my practice and my understanding of where I fit in the Christian tradition. I think that's kind of always evolving, but I I use the word contemplative because I think it reflects the third way between just conservative and progressive that I want to highlight. I want to highlight that space that holds both realities and tension, both realities as part of a faith tradition that we are constantly engaging in the past and constantly evolving and creating a better future. And so I say contemplative because it leaves space for silence, for mystery, and for um, maybe a disassociation from a political identity or particular agenda. So I just wanted to name that and now I would love to introduce you to Sarah Kai Price. Sarah and I met at CDSP, which you'll hear us both say a couple times in this interview, which stands for Church Divinity School of the Pacific. It is the tiny tiny seminary in the Graduate Theological Union up in Berkeley, California, where I spent the 21-22 academic year in preparation for my ordination to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, which is a long road and a process that has been trying and difficult and incredibly rewarding, and I realize is totally part of the vocation. Speaking of vocation, that's what Sarah and I got together to talk about today. She works with vocation in a really interesting way, and that's why I wanted to have her on the podcast. She has a dual kind of vocational identity, well, dual at least, and that's because she is both a social worker and ordained clergy, which isn't particularly shocking or maybe even that uncommon, but the way that she understands vocation and Understands that to be a unique expression of each individual that's constantly evolving and changing as we grow um, in this life was a really beautiful, freeing approach that I wanted to share with you all. Sarah is a professor and associate dean in the School of Social Work at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, where I grew up full circle. Uh, And then I met her on the other side of the country when she was a visiting scholar at CDSP this last fall. She also works with vocational deacons, which we don't really get into in this conversation, um, but that's a particular order of service in the Episcopal denomination. We do get into, however, uh, vocation and discerning vocation and discerning changes in vocation and burnout, Uh, We talk a good amount about burnout and avoiding burnout for those of us who find ourselves in a caretaking role. So I hope you feel cared for and I hope you feel challenged as you listen to this conversation with Sarah. And as always, I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback or responses to our conversation, know that this is a community and you are part of it. You can always get in touch with me about this podcast or anything using the About tab at chickmunkspodcast.com. So let's together, wherever you are, prepare for this moment and this conversation to see where wisdom might lead us. Let's take a deep breath in and out. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with the Reverend Dr. Sarah Kai Price. Amazing. Wonderful. And here we are. Just before we really like dive in, the only thing that I know that I really wanted to talk to you about is vocation, but truly anything that comes up is exciting and wonderful to me. There's really not a lot of like structure restriction around these conversations typically. So fantastic, um, yeah. I am just really grateful to get to have a conversation with you. I've really enjoyed meeting you at CDSP and um, even during a very intensive experience while you're only there for a few weeks. And I'm I'm grateful for the presence that you brought to that institution while I was there and I'm sure also this summer. Thank you, Heather.
0: It was been a joy, really, both, I mean, to be in the residential community this spring and then to be with the low res community this summer. So both are important parts of CDSP and it was just fun to really be in your midst and to see and immerse into your, your own formation experiences.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so maybe just to describe the different roles that you fill, because that's part of what is so interesting to me about your experience and perspective on vocation is that you have a lot of different hats that you wear. And it seems like all of them are very suited to your understanding of your own call to what you do in this world. So maybe you could give like a little overview of the different roles you play. Sure. And I think
0: it it is interesting. I feel like I have, my vocation is very Embodied and rooted in me, but it does take a lot Mm -hmm. of different forms. And so, Mm -hmm. whether it's a different hat or perhaps more feathers in the hat, I don't know. But uh, it's a great image. (laughs) So, I I spend a lot of my uh, work hours um, as a professor of social work. I'm um, at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. I had been a Rich practice. what? Rich what? Yeah, and <laughs> not Richmond, California, Like <laughs> this is Virginia. I know. Like, yeah, <laughs> the other code.
1: We still used to do <laughs> it when I was in high school because well, that's where I grew up, you know? Yeah,
0: exactly, so, exactly. It's been a long time for me in social work. So I I came to social work as something that felt for me like it was living out. How I understood the way I wanted to live in the world based on my faith and my ideas of um, what we need to be doing living in this world, really embracing the dignity and worth of all people and doing things that advance social and economic justice for all people. So mm-hmm. it was a profession that felt like I could do that. So always I felt a vocational pull to social work. Um, It wasn't just a job. It was something that um, fulfilled me and and the way that I understood spirituality and and faith in my life. Mm. And then um, I reached a point after I did that for a number of years, and especially doing work with hospice and bereavement, and really Mm. being steeped in all of the the depths of my profession, um, that I felt like I had something Else, I was being asked to offer, and I went to, um, I pursued my PhD. And so I decided the vocation of social work, the doing of social work well, um, was something that I wanted to invest in. Mm
1: -hmm. So, in
0: addition to doing some research in my field, I also became an educator in social work. So, in some ways, I think of myself as an academic social worker where I'm working with students and I'm teaching yeah. in the fields and I'm taking the things that I learned working with clients and relating them to others so that they can do this work with other people in other settings mm-hmm. and contribute to the field in that way, which is also one of our ethics in social work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I've been at that for, believe it or not, this will be year 17 that I'm starting up at VCU.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. And in the midst of that, I, um, Felt a call to bring all of who I am to serve the church. That was a little rough because I'm happier serving in the margins.
1: Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Uh, I feel that. Yeah. What? What? Um, how did that play out? I mean, a rough a rough calling is very relatable to me. That kind of yeah. like wrestling with it, like resisting. I think a know? lot
0: of us have that that roughness that was there, and mm-hmm. you know, I didn't I didn't choose to or enter into an ordination process because I think the church is so wonderful. I entered into the ordination process because I think the church has such potential. Right. Um, yes. And that there are things that we are sometimes called to do and be that take the church from what it sometimes ends up being because human beings are involved in it, what we could be. And, one of the things, uh, the the time at which I felt this call the strongest was the Sunday after the um, tragic shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Mm. And I think of that as, in kind of our cultural narrative, our American cultural narrative, as something that really was uh, a wake-up call to us. Not that that was the first tragic event by any means. Yeah. Um, but I think it hit people in a particular way. And I felt in my... Uh-huh. choir in my little seat in the choir that Sunday mm. um I felt people's palpable sadness and the church's sort of inability to respond
1: yeah and yes.
0: that's what I felt like, it still it, feels yes, that way doesn't it, does. it? yeah and mm. I felt a different nudge that said I need you here <laughs> it's like uh, mm. mm. <laughs> I wasn't happy about that Heather was not happy about that um, oh I know because even though there are aspects, and I you know, loved the community that I was worshiping with, but I was very aware of the hurt that has been imposed by this institution that we call the right. church, right. And it's very hard to align oneself with that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so my own call has been to wrestle with the fact that, as a social worker, I understand systems and I think in systems. Mm, yeah, and sometimes the intervention that we do even though sometimes when we work one-on-one with people, we feel the most connected to change. We're sort of seeing relationally that we're getting some immediate feedback that sometimes what we are called to do is to change a system. And some systems can be changed externally and some systems can be changed internally. And I came to realize that there were things about this thing, the church of this Mm -hmm. institution that needed, I was being called to stand in and speak, speak into and live into Mm -hmm. and in doing so um, create some ripples of change. Um, That's what I hope to do. And I think I've always been open about what that looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it takes on many different forms. So to your original question, yeah, like for me, sometimes that looks like a bit of parish ministry mm-hmm. um, and integrating people across margins of social difference into deep and beautiful worship together. And wow,
1: I want to uh, hear about that, yeah,
0: and sometimes yeah. it looks like um getting invited to teach at a seminary and to weave social work and the yeah. ways that social workers think into the ways in which we get to live with each other. Because I think there's, I hope, believe there's some lessons there. Not that social work has it all figured out and the church doesn't have it all figured out, but sometimes taking the best of what we know can create a shared language that has some impact. And that's my hope. So that's what I got to do this year um, is explore that um, and spend a little time on sabbatical from BCU to be with CDSP And to explore those intersections between social work and spiritual care.
1: So on this end of, you know, your spring and summer with CDSP, which Church Divinity School of the Pacific, I should say up front, is the seminary that I met Sarah at. Um, After a spring and summer there in residence, do you have different visions for how social work and the church overlap and can can support one another and, you know, what we might even call God's kingdom coming to earth. Yeah. I think what I, I think what has been for me, like that deep engagement has
0: let me stand in a place of people who are being called and desiring to do the good work of spiritual care yeah. and to have conversations with all of you uh, bringing my social work language to that and in mm-hmm. doing that it's helped me speak some things out loud. I've heard things come out mm-hmm. of my mouth when I'm standing in a different, you know, location right. that are really important. And so some of those things, I know you're going to love this. The first one is that like the, the 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 Christian church was never meant to be a church of empire. It was never what? meant what? never meant, talking about? Never, meant <laughs> never meant to be the dom- be a dominant Um, system that creates oppression Um, it it was created on the margins and it thrived on the margins and Jesus's example is lived out in people on the margins Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we know history and you know uh, history has resulted in people being marginalized Mm -hmm. and we have some choice making to do as a church in terms of where our alignments are Because it can be very comfortable, read financially secure and, you know, power secure to find themselves in positions. But those are positions that take us away from the experiences of people who are living in social marginalization and for whom hurting is part of their experience of being a human being and God. Yeah. This is part of their experience being a human being, and if we've removed ourselves from hurt, you know, we're kind of treating ourselves prophylactically by avoiding any kind of difficulty or pain. We're removing ourselves from that experience,
1: right? Like the true human experience, yeah. and it's yeah. and it's uh, it's us who takes the toll. Like we pay the cost for removing ourselves from the like the actual full authentic human experience, right? So,
0: I've been thinking a lot about that and what that means for the way in which we live into ministry, Mm. for what it means about who and how we center. Um, Right.
1: And when, uh, if I can jump in, when clergy are expected to be CEOs of a church, you know, it's really difficult to run a business and keep people, right, like happy with what they're. (laughs) <laughs> it feels like a club model sometimes, you know, right? Like there's a membership you pay that you get the service back. And if you're dissatisfied, then maybe you find a different club, but. Yeah.
0: So then all that transaction gets in the way and yes, then it just becomes, just becomes business, business-like. Right.
1: And I think the
0: more insidious thing, cause it's easier to do, like some of us are like, oh yes, I won't be the CEO. Like we can, mm-hmm. so we can sort of get behind mm-hmm. that. The thing that we talked about a lot this week that's harder is that we also need to be aware of our power differential in our desire to fix other people.
1: Yes. Or oh, fix yes. Other people's
0: circumstances. That's not our call. I mean, our call is to be relational and to partner with and to companion, to stand in solidarity mm-hmm. with people who are socially marginalized. We will figure out what right. to do together from there.
1: Right. It's not that we're
0: then called to, you know, to be patronizing either. It's not that we just say, oh, yeah, that's your lot in life. No, if we're truly standing in solidarity, it's going to change us and we're going to talk together about Mm -hmm. what the actions are that help us participate in a vision that God has for us.
1: Yes. Ah, beautiful. I think that you just hit something that speaks to, like... I think learning about privilege for the first time for people of Anglo heritage, it's so overwhelming and it can get shoved aside, you know, and and resisted as like, well, that's not, that's not my experience. And it's because we don't want that to be our responsibility to fix it. Right. And like, you're saying, no, that is not the response. You don't have to fix anything. You Just have to be in relationship and realize that all of the, the artificial, Barriers across uh, socioeconomic status and a plethora of other things. Like these barriers are human made and and our job is to take them down, not necessarily like fix a problem or a person. Right.
0: You know, the the questions that I feel a lot of times from people when they encounter someone who is living unhoused, experiencing food insecurity. Like there are things if we stand mm-hmm. in solidarity that we have and we're called to share and we're called to do, right. but that's different than saying, well, I met this person. And so I've got to fix their problem for them because yeah. that also is asserting our power and our agency, um, over their lives and yeah. their lives. Um, people who live differently than we do, do not, um, not have uh, beautiful lives of faith and right agency and decision-making. So, yeah,
1: yeah. that's a tough, um, I guess it's a tough distinction to make, right? And when we're not practiced and and knowing how how much we can help and when helping becomes a hindrance to all parties involved. Do you have any... Any insights or like red flags or things to look for to be able to parse the difference between the two? I think my main
0: red flag is if you find yourself sitting alone, writing out solutions to people's problems or calling a whole bunch of people to advocate for someone. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, that like that's a red flag. And I know that yeah. sometimes people are like, oh, I've got to call all these places and see if I can get so-and-so for, you know, such-and-such for so-and-so. But mm-hmm. if you're doing that, like sitting by yourself alone doing those things, mm-hmm. where's the person? Yeah. You know, what where's the person in this? And right. and that, and that's hard. You know, I think sometimes, as you say, particularly as Anglo Anglo-Americans, as as you know, people who live in white bodies,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we have been, we have a sense of using our privilege and we think that it's for the betterment but sometimes we are using our privilege and we're just showing that we have privilege yeah um, and right. you know we're in, and that's the times when as a social worker or a spiritual care professional this can happen in in any walk of life and is mm-hmm. not just me pointing my finger to to spiritual care providers I, I you know I've, sure. my whole my own you know whole social work career has been the same way if I am sitting in my desk designing the best care plan that someone could ever have, and then going to them and saying, "This is what this is what you should do," and right. that person's like, I'm "Not doing that," right? And then you know, in, in social work, if I'm if I'm not practicing well, I can be like, "Well, why is this person being so noncompliant?" Well, why mm-hmm. am I not being a partner? <laughs> why, am yeah, right, right. why am I not standing in solidarity? Yes. Why
1: am I colonizing their healing? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right?
0: exactly. And like that can happen down. individually. Like I think sometimes we can see yeah. that structurally, like we don't want to be colonizers and we can be in that place, but we have opportunities mm-hmm. on the day-to-day mm-hmm. to not colonize. I love your terminology for that. Not colonize people's lives. Right. To be in solidarity, to recognize hurt, to recognize oppression. Mm-hmm. To apologize, where to to mm-hmm. stand in a place where mm-hmm. we can't change something, but we can name it as yeah. an oppressive system and say, what can we do cool. together from here?
1: But that means that we have to be uncomfortable, Sarah. Yeah. That means mm-hmm. that we have to be like in the mess of things that we can't fix or yes. change. It's messy. But That's messy. hard.
0: Mm-hmm. It is messy and it is hard. And... There are people for whom their every day is messy and hard.
1: Yeah, and they oh. still see
0: God, That's <laughs> and they right. still um, find hope. That's right. And um, it there's something for us in that too, mm-hmm. because sometimes we feel a hopelessness in our privilege mm-hmm. that seems greater than what people experience with. Out those privileges, and we have to ask ourselves, what have we sold? <laughs> what have what, what have we sold and given away? And what are we devoid of that we're beginning to feel hopeless? Yeah,
1: that landed really strongly for me. I think that is um, even the term privilege. I think is something that I mean. I hear a lot of people push back against, and it's difficult to swallow. But what you're highlighting is that like, well, sure, privilege in some areas, but like at what cost? I mean, it's certainly cost other people and other lives and other bodies in different material ways, but like the spiritual and existential and mental angst of quote unquote privilege, right? Like, well, what? what, who's winning here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's it's... other
0: things. There's other pieces of cost. And when you said that, Heather, I just, I, I won't belabor the story too much, but it, a, mm. a story popped into my mind. Just a yeah. day, just like a little glimpse of a day. It's when mm-hmm. I was working for hospice and I had two different home visits to do with people who were recently um, bereaved Two people who ha- who were wid- widows. And um, I had mm. a morning and an afternoon visit and my morning visit, um you know, I was driving my rather beat up social worker car into a very wealthy sure. neighborhood and feeling a little bit like the pizza delivery person I admit right but uh you know it all was good, yeah, you know, I was like yeah I'm here and i um but i I had this visit, and it was the most um I felt so unsettled afterwards. It was such a hard visit because the person that I was speaking to who was obviously very wealthy and did not have any wasn't experiencing any you know sort of um, immediate financial or tangible challenges um, in their grief and bereavement, obviously it was grieving, but couldn't stay with me. like anytime I said something that was to acknowledge an emotion or a feeling, he mm-hmm. mm-hmm. actually got up and left the room because the presentation had to be so stoic and had to be so. Um, clean so I mean it was a you know not as long of a visit as I typically would be it did I didn't feel like we engaged even though I was saying the same things and asking the same questions Mm
1: -hmm. and that
0: afternoon I my visit was with someone who um, in an area of town where her sons were waiting for me and sat outside in their lawn chairs while I you know watching my car and letting people know that I was There because the family wanted me to be there. Um, I didn't. I didn't match the you know the the racial and ethnic profile of that neighborhood, and it was mm a neighborhood many people would consider unsafe. Never felt Mm -hmm. safer and more Mm -hmm. welcomed in my life because I was the one invited there. Right. Um, You know, I wasn't imposing. (sighs) I was invited there, and I had this incredible visit with this grieving human being, and we walked through the house and. Her room to room and she had different pictures up and and she would mm. tell stories and yes. we would weep and, you know, people came in and out of the house and would give her hugs. Mm. And I remember driving back to the office and thinking like, where is wealth? <laughs> you know, right. like, well, how is this? How do we understand this concept? Because right. there's, uh, it's not just in what possessions we have or where we live or, you know, how financially secure we are. I certainly felt a presence of wealth in that afternoon that I didn't feel at all in the morning. And I know that each of them had their own personal struggles with bereavement, but it said something to me about what we tend to think of and privilege um, as the better, the better position who has the better part.
1: Sure. Yeah. Like when a, when, when, emotions are alive and active and flowing freely and expressed and at the end of the day creating more connection and relationship like isn't that what our emotions are supposed to do for us like move us towards one another and um, maybe that's overly simplistic to say but I at this point kind of think that's true and um, when we don't like where do they go where does that when they when we don't let them flow like that doesn't that causes issues (laughs)
0: exactly and without like and i don't mean this is a statement of people's piety or expression you know particularly in the episcopal church we talk about that a lot but i think there's a parallel in that narrative around worship um oh yeah around you know how it is that we engage and how vulnerable we're willing to be with god who is present with us
1: yeah that's right that's right tell me about um Creating a worship experience or facilitating a worship experience with people across uh, diverse social locations, I bet that spoke to this discrepancy that we're talking about right now. It does. I mean, to me, I was very,
0: um, I'm very grateful for the way in which my sending parish, the parish that I attended as a parishioner um, and that supported me through seminary, um, lived into this really well. And Mm -hmm. they're a neighborhood parish and their neighbors included um, some single room occupancy, very um, people who had uh, mental health and physical health challenges um, and who were there and not living in great conditions, you know, and living in places that, um, the, the landlord is, you know, taking their SSI check, but not necessarily providing much in return than mm-hmm. something over their head. But that was mm-hmm. part of a, a neighborhood and it was a very, you know, eclectic and diverse neighborhood. And having, you know, walking with as just a member of that congregation in terms of how we demonstrate welcome both at Sunday worship and at food pantry and at other events and companioning people um, Mm -hmm. being present, not having sort of those parishioners and these parishioners or food pantry people and Sunday people, but really welcoming, radically welcoming, And I remember when I first, you know, I I first became a, a lay Eucharistic minister. I first was, you know, offering the chalice to people and participating in the liturgy in that way. And I remember how profoundly it moved me one Sunday when everyone came to the altar rail and knelt and there was, you know, the person who was the, lawyer and the person who was the teacher and the person who was the social worker and mm-hmm. the woman who wore four hats and um and you or know one hat with lots, lots of feathers, feathers and, <laughs> yeah and 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 the and and the people who were you know who had been there and been present and who you know um but would not be who maybe people would think of when they thought of who an Episcopalian is in the pew, you know, who, who were there and and understanding and and being present in this service in the way that they could. And one of them um, held out her hand and said, I want Jesus. And I, and I, I was like, yeah, me too. Like, yes, that, yes, yes. And that is why we're all here. And I think like, for me, there is an image and, whether it's there, whether it's when we're gathered together and we're very different from one another and we are all there to receive Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is, those are glimpses of whatever heaven is. Those are glimpses where um, Jesus God is seeing us Mm -hmm. all in our brokenness and our beauty. And it's beautiful and, and we're all met. And for me, that feels very different than being in a country club where everyone looks like, or goes to the same places or mm-hmm. walks in the same social circles. It it doesn't stir it up enough. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I think, and then when you do that and you create that kind of welcome, you're changed, right? So you're thinking about, well, what does my neighbor need? And, you know, mm-hmm. how do, how do I understand, how do I, preach in a context where people may be at different levels of educational attainment or people may have different needs in terms of what they can take in an auditory way or a visual way. Um, people mm-hmm. who need to walk during, move during services, you know, people who, right. for whom sitting for an hour long service is going to be too much. So how do we create the ability to walk in and out and not be seen as disruptive uh, Mm -hmm. because that's where people are at. That's that's how they can engage. So I think Mm -hmm. it invites us to different questions. And that's, I think, my point, irrespective of how difference might look in our contexts. If we embrace it, it invites us to ask questions about how do we learn from each other and with each other. Yes. And if we're all the same, we're not asking those questions. We have a presumption of everything being the same and right. we don't ask the questions. Right. So it gets kind of rote.
1: Yeah. And, and smaller and smaller when we don't ask the questions, right? Because yeah. there, new people, different people don't come because it's pretty clear when, when we're very well behaved and uh, like quietly walk up the aisle to the altar with our hands, out and our head bowed and whisper like a quiet amen, right? Mm-hmm. After you receive the body and blood of Christ. It's, I love the image or the the sound. I can hear it. Her saying, I want Jesus. How beautiful. It kind of busts open a lot of the things that we think have to be a certain way. Yes. When someone's brave enough to not care what the rules are right. and just be authentic yeah. and be themselves. Right. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> And to see that as holy,
0: to step into yes. that for its holy opportunity, I think is is really a gift.
1: It is. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so those visits that you were talking about, they were social work visits? Those were or social were work, work visits. No,
0: they were social work visits. That was long before I ever thought of myself as... Um, having a collar on. Um, I, 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 I was very, um, those are visits for hospice. I was working as a social worker, not a chaplain. Um, so my role on the team, if I you know was to be with a family, if I was doing a hospice visit, to be with the family and the person who was the center of the hospice team to help them um, enact the best decisions for them mm-hmm. and to interact with the team and to pull together things from their... Um, from their family life, from their social mm-hmm. uh, situations, from their psychological well-being, to help them be at peace, to help them yeah. to be comfortable, and in bereavement, mm-hmm. to do the same thing—to stand with a uh, a family and a person who the system that they had been a part of was fu- is, had been fundamentally altered. There was someone that they loved yeah. that was no longer part of that system, and how to honor. Their presence and mm-hmm. figure out what the now looks like, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. to figure out how to live in the now without that person's physical presence here. And so yeah. I think those are really um, there's social work roles and they're secular roles, but they're also holy roles. You know, they're, yes. they're, there's, there's a very, there's a sacredness there. Um, And I think this particular term, when I was able to talk about social work and spiritual care, I mean, social work does embrace a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective. Spirituality Mm -hmm. is part of it. And -hmm. whether that takes the form of formal religion or someone's sense of that which is greater than they are or the human potential to reach beyond the self, like all those are evidence of our spirit. And so Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. part of my work in social work often is to help social workers be comfortable in the realm of honoring people's spirit and spirituality to know Mm -hmm. that that doesn't have to be about religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, standing with spiritual care providers, we're comfortable with that, but we're maybe less comfortable with some of the biopsychosocial pieces and who does what and how, uh, how to, how where our role is and where our role isn't. Um, Mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think that there's different directions directionalities in the way we help but sure. ultimately we're trying to to do all of those things
1: sure this is kind of taking me back to the season in my life where i was trying to decide like what the right next step was like i had kind of a big sense of okay spiritual direction really appeals to me as meaningful work that i'll do and um Worship has always been really important to me, though it was kind of a rocky relationship there with worship for a while and frankly kind of still is because of the context that I'm in in the Episcopal Church. Um, but you and I have talked about that before. Yes, so. yes. Um and, but I'm I'm remembering like having all of these pieces and education and trainings and like, okay, what's the most important next thing to get where I'm going? And um there seemed to be a lot of overlapping desires and even like responsibilities and aspects of each like path that I was interested in. But making that, or I guess discerning the next right decision was kind of like, I didn't really have a lot of clarity until COVID uh, really like ended things for me very abruptly and forced me to make a new decision, or at least gave me wide open canvas to be able to say like okay I think I'm I'm ready for this next very big thing so I'm all of that to ask I'm curious if you uh, could speak to that at all for those of us who might have a sense of like I know I want to be of service I know that um, being involved in these parts these holy and tender parts of people's lives feels um, irresistible almost you know it's like that I think it felt like that for me and it sounds kind of like it did for you um, that like yeah of course that's where I want to spend my life and I wonder if you could give any direction for people who are discerning like which path to take mm-hmm. or how to how to figure that out
0: that's that's uh, a really great question um, I, I would say first of all that I, I'm not sure that it ever ends so I think oh, if that's I were right. to go back and like tell young, younger Sarah something, you know, or or that I give to my students now is just to say, nothing is finite. Yeah. Nothing is finite. And, you know, discernment will always be with you. So like honing your skills and your knowledge and your fortitude for the ways you want to work with people is very different than, um, the walking the path of where your paycheck is going to come from at any different time. Hmm. So, and I, I've tried to separate those things out a little bit and, and to say there are ways in which I see the world and the ways in which the person that I am is called to be with people. Mm -hmm. I think in systems, that's a very social work thing. Like I Mm -hmm. naturally see not just a person, but a person in the context of family, in the context of community, mm. in the context of macro systems and culture. I've, I've developed more language around that mm-hmm. as a social work professional, but that is the way I always saw people, sort of beyond wow. this immediacy, yeah. and just to see. All of these pieces that were influencing people's lives. I needed to sort of rein that in yeah. and get language and figure out what to do yeah. with it. But you know, I think about like that's something that when I took a first social work class, I was like, wow, wow, okay. This is a this is a way of seeing the world that really meshes with me. And mm. so like, like finding that out, and maybe that, you know, maybe your language is is worship or being present with people's spirit or whatever it is Mm -hmm. like the way in which you we each of us the beautiful diversity of how we see and interact with people some people are very Mm -hmm. relational some people are very drawn to like policy and directions and understanding the like the those steps that influence people and you know I mean we need all of us (laughs) in Mm -hmm. this world right right? right, and so thinking about that and and taking your training, and by that I mean your formal education, and what you choose to read and view mm-hmm. and watch and take in. So it's both mm-hmm. about achieving something in terms of the educational system and feeding your soul <laughs> with the, yeah. with things that you want to read. Um, you know, I was always, even as a kid, like, I liked books about people from other cultures. Like, it was just very, like, that was always interesting to me. I didn't want to read about yeah. people who were just like I, I was. And oh, I didn't have words great. for that, right? But, like, as a kid, sure. I was just, like, curious. Like, that's, you know, and that's me seeing, oh, people are different when they have a different cultural viewpoint. Um, sure. And that, you know, as an adult, I can see where some of that inclination is, takes up you know, residence in my social workiness and my my systems thinking. and um, But th- that was just from a curiosity. That was just, mm-hmm. you know, you could see that evident in different ways. Um, some people are just highly, highly creative. And, mm-hmm. you know, their sense of exploration just can put things together in ways that... Mm-hmm others of us wouldn't be able to see happening and then hone mm-hmm. that like, like mm-hmm. run with, you know, embrace their strengths. I believe we all have been given strengths and part of that discernment comes in understanding how we see the world. And then what do we need to do to take those things that are strengths and to learn a language for them and to learn how mm-hmm. to practice them well. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. like Heather, I know you also have some musical gifts and strengths, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard you do that, but you, you, you're sitting on that or never opening your voice or never opening your mouth or being able to think about how your voice works to Mm -hmm. practice it and Mm -hmm. to, um, to engage it is also an essential part of the process. Right. And so like, those are the things that that's the role for me of education and um, Mm -hmm. formal and informal is to help to refine those things, which are strengths and then, to become aware of the areas where we probably need to learn more in order to do what it is we're doing well. And, you know, part of discernment comes in to say, like, we don't all have all the things. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember very distinctly, like my decision to go back and get a PhD, which was a hard one for me
1: because I love
0: people in practice, but I was trying so hard and not succeeding as a practitioner to do some innovative things and to write the kind of grants and requests so that Mm. people would be able and willing Mm -hmm. to give me what I needed to start Mm -hmm. up something innovative. And I just didn't have those skills. I hadn't Mm -hmm. learned them. I knew they existed, but I didn't have them. Um, So like the research, the grant writing, pieces like that, Are those things that are, like, they light a fire under me? No. Are they things that give me what I need to do (laughs) to do the work that I'm called to do? Yes. So, like, learning. So sometimes then our discernment is, like, what else do I need? What what needs Mm. to be added to my toolbox, my toolkit, (laughs) so that I can really live into the thing I'm called to do? Um, And sometimes we find we have gifts and skills there we didn't even know about. uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. That's all right. Um, And... Those are the things that I think this discernment process about. And then, you know, the constant discernment is, okay, as I have these, these pieces, these this, the aspects of myself, the beautiful diversity of being a human being, the formal training and the, um, and the informal quest for knowledge, how does all that come together? And yeah. where are the places in the world that I can live that out? And I don't, most of us are not going to have only one place that we live that out. That's Some right. Our yeah. Time, or maybe at the same time, you that's know. Right. Um, I'm probably really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think um, because I'm a little bit older than you, I was socialized still in a world that thought you would have like one job.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so was I. I just okay. said like, yeah.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> 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 I think like my daughter, who's you know about nine, it's about to turn 19. You mm-hmm. know, is more her reality is this, like, gig economy that we're in, yeah, right, that, yeah. like, the thought that she would have, like, one job or one career is kind of, like, doubtful, um, and that's a whole other topic, but,
1: yeah, like, I learned is. from that, mm. right,
0: I take that in and realize that, like, the world has changed fundamentally mm-hmm. in that regard,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: so, you know, for me, that's a little bit of how I look at it, not that everything's a gig, but like sometimes things are long-term and I'm like, I need to do this. because mm-hmm. It's good for me and it's good for people. And sometimes like this opportunity to sort of be with you all at CDSP, like, mm-hmm. you know, that was presented to me. I was already doing three different things and I knew instantly it was something I wanted to do, but that meant I would have to step away for some other things, at least for a mm-hmm. season. And mm-hmm. so I think being able to be in this place where sometimes we step in, and then sometimes we step back and we yeah. don't think it all revolves around us. So things that have to step back yes. from are still in good hands and flourishing. And I care about the people and I pray about the people and they have good people working with them. It is not all about me. Like yeah. they're having Thank their God. own great experience. Thanks right. be to God. Absolutely. Right. Right. And I think that's just another lesson in, um, Like being living into where we're called to do. There's a sort of Mm -hmm. trust about that in terms of living into it. And I've not been dropped on my head. Um, I've Mm -hmm. been through times that were more lean, and I've been through times that were more plentiful. And you know what? God is always with me through that. And that's right. That's okay. Um, Yeah. So I thought about that a lot when I left. You know, I I left a whole. I've left a geography a couple different times. You know, to Mm -hmm. do things in different geographies and. Thought mm-hmm. I don't know how this is going to go, but if yeah, you know, if I believe in my heart of heart, it's the right thing. Um, and and things right. have worked out. You know, I mean, they don't always. I'm not saying they're always easy, but they yeah. they do work out. And I learned,
1: yeah. you know, I learned, from and the- you grow in like new and different ways yeah. that you weren't before. Yeah, I really love your vision of education. That's so much better than like, what do you want to do when you grow up, which is what I was offered and we still say that to kids all I the picked time, a major. you know. Yeah. yeah.
0: There are very few p- kids who ever say I want to be a social worker when I grow up, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I'm I sure. I mean, I'm kind of part of a profession that people come from, come to Sometimes people really know because they've worked with a social worker and they, they have a sense of that. But in very many ways, a lot of people who come into social work um, education do so because they are, are trying to figure out um, what to do when the primary um, interest d- either didn't work out or wasn't the livelihood.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, speaking of which, I'm curious um, – I I have a few friends who studied social work in undergrad and worked as social workers right out of undergrad and promptly burnt out because Mm. uh, I feel like that is not even close to a unique experience for them. And not just in social work, of course, like ministry is just is Mm. also prone to the kind of compassion fatigue that. I think especially when we're young, you know, in my in my 20s it was a lot harder for me to understand how to enter into um other people's suffering in a way that didn't rob me of my own like life force that yeah. I filled myself up to. So um burnout. burnout how do we how do we avoid that or heal from it or what do we learn from burnout? That's a-
0: So important, so important. I mean, first of all, it's real because people working with people's problems every day and let's face Mm -hmm. it, the majority of people don't go and see a social worker or seek out pastoral care or spiritual care because things are going so fabulously. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So uh, people are more than their problems, but very often it's their problems that bring them into contact with us. Well said. But that statement is important to avoiding burnout. Because mm-hmm. what can happen is that when we see problem after problem after problem, people become their problems. Yeah. And then we just feel like we're working with problems, not people. So I have, I have mm-hmm. long said that uh, um, for me, this is from my own learning. This is not because I have some wise gift from above. It's because I've learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that for me, a sure sign that I am headed to burnout and I need to do something different is when I start seeing problems instead of people. Yeah. So when I start thinking just about problems and I can't be present with Mm -hmm. people. And that tells me that I've lost my footing a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. and part of avoiding burnout is realizing that we're always at risk for it. Sure. So we have to learn our triggers and our triggers are not things that then should make us like, Gotta go. like shut it down, avoid it totally, but it's to say, I need more. And my students do an eco eco map, you know, um which is just a, a technique we sometimes do um, in social work where we're thinking about all the systems and things around us that are both are part of our energy flow, places mm-hmm. where we're giving our energy away and mm-hmm. things that are giving us energy. And we can, if we're inclined to help, if we're inclined to be helping people, We can very often be in situations where we're giving more of our energy away than we are taking it in. And in order to be a non-burnt out, um, settled body, a a grounded Mm -hmm. person, we Mm -hmm. need to have an inflow of energy Mm -hmm. that matches our output of energy. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: the more demanding our roles are that we need to give, the more mm-hmm. diligent we have to be about caring for our soul. And that just doesn't mean just the self-care of like, you know, time off and doing your nails, but like really having the things, the people we can contact, the um, the relief valves that can help us in the immediacy of difficult mm-hmm. situations, the longer term, the intermediate and longer term things that we're doing that commit to giving ourselves care um Mm -hmm. to I mean I found when I was doing really intense crisis work I stopped watching television um live like especially Mm -hmm. the news and I've Mm -hmm. never gone back I've never gone back never went back I don't watch the news at all it's not to say I'm not aware of what's going on but I choose how and when and what sources Right. Um, to be informed. And that was a fundamental difference for me mm-hmm. in terms of what I was able to do. Because when I'm just getting sensationalized news poured at me, it's constantly yeah. draining me.
1: Right. And more problems. And they're not people, like hardly exactly. ever people. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, like filling that time with music that nourishes me in the background yeah. instead of a blah blah blah, you know, drone of a of a newscast like those are some things that it does not always about like taking more time or like Mm -hmm. carving out the week vacation those are important too but sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like how do we how do we shift our day you know yeah
1: subtracting things even can be sometimes better than adding exactly
0: I mean yeah Yeah. I see you have plants behind you even like I'm here temporarily and I still have my little like basil plant you know and things and like there are things that nurture me or going you know. Breaking up my day and being in in nature and appreciating, mm, yes, you know the little bird that hops on my windowsill, or and just staying in that moment, like those are not little silly things. Are actually things that help us focus on mm-hmm. the present, and mm-hmm. we don't. Uh, for me, I don't get lost in them, the world of, you know, the higher, the 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 too big, too ideological, too existential can make me feel Mm. like I'm drowning um, because I'm focused on my present and who is here and what is here. And, and that helps me know I'm, I'm making progress and doing the pieces that are entrusted to me and investing them. So I think for me, burnout is, I, I deal with it because I realize that it's real and it's an ever present threat. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I have to constantly be in this place of managing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also aware of who I am, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a multitasker. You know, I'm, I'm someone who likes. I get a lot of satisfaction about doing a lot of different things and not always mm-hmm. doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means that I probably am going to have, you know. I mean, job and another job. I am going to have, Mm -hmm. you know, different Mm -hmm. things that I'm doing at the same time. I'm not going to be, I'm not ever, you're never going to hear me be a person. And I love my family to dearly, but you're never going to be, hear me be a person that says, I always put my family first, Mm
1: -hmm. or
0: I always put X first. I don't think we always do everything. I think yeah. that sometimes mm. I I love my family and I am committed to my vocation and yeah. I do you know I my my life of faith informs everything that I do, um, but sometimes these various segments of my life are gonna seem like they win. I'm just going to lean into them at different times. So Mm -hmm. the image I use for balance is not like some static thing. It's like trying to walk a balance beam and I'm not that graceful. So if I'm going to stay up on it, I'm going to be like moving in a lot of different directions to keep my balance there. And that actually lets my center of gravity be where it needs to be. Um, Totally. So that's, that's to me, like, I know that's a way that I avoid burnout. And if something is not serving me, then it's time for me to wish it well and think about what is, because it might just be that I'm not the right person or that's not the right right system for me. It's okay. It's not a flaw or a fault. It just is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, it's, a couple of things. One, I totally agree on the balance idea. I, I remember I've heard people talk a lot about balance as though it's some sort of like pendulum, you know, that's swinging from one extreme to the other. And we're just hoping that it'll hang out in the middle sometime and stop moving. But that's not balance. That's stagnation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like true balance is above like on the fulcrum of exactly what you're describing on a balance beam resisting both extremes mm-hmm. but also engaged in both extremes you know finding that yeah. way through through the middle where i don't fall all the way into giving myself away or i don't fall all the way into completely like holding up and just protecting myself from the world there's mm-hmm. there's an engagement and a resistance with Both of those ways of being that I mean, I fall off the balance beam a lot. So in both directions. (laughs) But I think that's what we're here to learn. I guess we (laughs) get back up again. You know, that's part
0: of the balance too, right? Uh, Yeah. You know, it's so uh, yeah, I think that I've heard too many professional seminars on like avoiding burnout or like Mm -hmm. that kind Mm -hmm. of make it be an evil thing. Like I I realize it lives with me as an ever-present
1: companion. That's well said. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that as someone who has spent so much of her life in bereavement and grief and like very aware of mortality, always with us Mm -hmm. that, you know, death is always with us, that endings are always happening and they are a good and beautiful and painful part of life. And, So, to be able to say, like, the end of myself, you know, Mm -hmm. like this little d death that I'm always experiencing while I engage with the rest of the world, like, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. There's nothing wrong here. It's just information. To respond to, I'm preaching to myself now because this it's is good. like it's a good sermon. It's a good sermon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this is really what I need to hear. So thank you everyone we always, for participating. Yeah, we always preach
0: to ourselves. Exactly. Right. Exactly exactly. 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 So I would say to your friends that are, you know, experiencing burnout, or to anyone if they're listening in there and you're feeling that burnout, like don't beat up on yourself about that. Like just, That's right. just give it That's a name right. and and then think about well, what is it that the experience has taught or is teaching you? What does it help you know where your strengths are? How does it help you know if there are some things that you need to lean into a little bit more or learn about more? Like we No one ever takes away from us the things that we do to invest in ourselves. You know, you can mm-hmm. lean into them. So if something wasn't right, and a lot of entry-level work is high burnout. It's yeah. super high burnout. And it doesn't come equipped with a lot of the processing that we need. Like the, the reason why I did well, when I think about that time that I was doing like the most intense, emotionally intense work of mm-hmm. doing work with like traumatic grief and bereavement, I had the closest relationship with those colleagues. I'm still friends. I'm still in contact with mm-hmm. the colleagues that were there. We were in peer supervision together all the time. We had each other's backs, all the time. We knew we were doing really difficult work and those people were important to me and we were vulnerable yeah. with each other yeah. and, and we supported each other. And like, that's key. Like I look yes. back on that. It's yes. not that that work wasn't high burnout. It was that simultaneous to that work. We had built in a lot of supports and the agency mm-hmm. I work for also had a lot of grace built around what we needed to do so that we could be, uh, functioning in in uh, with people's difficult life situations. So it, it, that's what it requires. And so if you've mm-hmm. been working in a position, even if you felt really called to it, but you didn't have the right supports around you,
1: yeah, yeah burnout yeah.
0: will be with you. And that's not because you're a bad social worker or <laughs> or a, right. a flawed human being. It's because we need those pieces that support us. So I, I just right. want to name that for people. Sometimes I think I lose people or my field, social work field, loses people early on because mm-hmm. i think if it is them like they're wrong for the field and sometimes right. it's the things that are you're being asked to do in the structure that's provided aren't yeah. actually healthy
1: right and, and you didn't know what to ask for, right? right. Like you're just thrown no, into it at the beginning and it's like, this is how it is. Well, like absolutely not
0: going to do yeah, that. Yeah, I've got some rough rough times like that or jobs that didn't last long for me too. And 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 I look at those, you know, and and yeah. then I think about that. And I also think about that in terms of how I would advise people to structure yeah. agencies and support and how to do mm-hmm. genuine, authentic Leadership um, in organizations that Mm -hmm. allows people to thrive and to flourish and to Mm -hmm. be cared for while they're doing difficult work.
1: Right. Um, Which is another piece of vocation, right? That discerning not just my own strengths and what I what makes me come alive is a way I like to think about it. But but also discerning the context in which I'm going to offer those strengths and gifts and to what end right just the the system I love that you think in systems I need I need more of that in my life (laughs) but is the system supportive is the system life-giving similarly are the people involved are these people whom I'm called to work with you know are these people aligned in a vision of the kind of work that I want to do and or are we open about how we can work together? Because I've been I've been in plenty of contexts, especially in the church world, where I can offer my strengths, but or I can offer some strengths that the church needs because there's a hole. But I've also been in contexts where I walk in and I say, This is what I'm gonna offer. And then, like, something entirely new is built up around it, and like life springs forth there because that community was actually very receptive to what I could offer authentically as me rather than plugging into an empty spot just to kind of learn the ropes or like right. contribute to the system and, that's already and the joy
0: running. It's in yeah. that, that's in that that synchronicity, that, you know, the, the coming together, that partnership and that collaboration and it's bigger than we are, you know, and, it, yes. and, and it feels good when it happens. And, and there's also times when it's not happening and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay that things are there mm-hmm. for a season. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, I think sometimes I felt early on, a little too much like I have to do all the things to make this work out. Yeah. And it's a more of a trust fault to be like, yeah, no. Yeah, um, sometimes I got to go. Yeah. Sometimes we just have to go. And sometimes this mm-hmm. is a season and maybe it's a season that pays my bills while I'm looking for another thing, but right. just don't let it suck your soul. It's a season and yeah. there's other things that are there.
1: Mm, that's very, very important advice. I'm so grateful that you shared that, um, I like to close these conversations with a question that you've sort of already answered. So maybe you have a new thought to it, but maybe you repeat yourself either way is fine. What is one spiritual practice that's bringing you life right now?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I'd love that. Um, so I have been noticing the um, icons of my journey. I have been, uh, so uh, uh, this Particular moment, um, I've been very drawn in by people in history who. I think of as inspirations, whether they're technically saints or whether they are the icons of my journey as a social mm. worker or an academic or a priest or, and I've been surrounding myself with their images. Uh, so, cool. yeah, so, and and funny story yesterday, I was worshiping at St. Gregory of Nyssa in San Francisco, which is oh. where I love to be when I'm here and it, it fills my cup and I just, and they, for those who aren't familiar with it, they have dancing saints it's filled with icons all around the rotunda where the worship space is and so it was really funny because I've been there a lot and yet it was one particular uh dancing saint that was like pulling me in all mm. like I just kept like this this woman in the orange jacket and the purple uh skirt and I didn't know who it was like it wasn't someone that mm. I I knew but I was definitely drawn to this person so you know afterwards I was I I I was talking with Paul Fromberg, the rector, and I was like, who is that fate? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I, I uh-huh. don't know if to look it up. We're in a relationship yes, now. Yes, I, need then, no, I need to know. I need to know. I need to know. We've been in a relationship today. Like, we've been, we've been worshiping together all day. Right. And um, it turns out um, that it was Donaldina Cameron, who is a social worker uh, uh, <laughs> in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, sort of an early pioneer in social services. And did a Damn. lot of work, yeah, a lot of work with, um, uh, in what I would call the settlement house movement. Um, you know, the time in which um, people, even if they were people of privilege, um, were setting themselves inside communities that had a great need and aligning themselves with communities to to, to partner in, in that. And in this case, you know, it was the, uh, it was this community and she still has a house Cameron house that's in San Francisco. So there's a lot, whole history there. So I've been reading up on her history and, and it's quite beautiful, but I thought, of course, of course. Yeah. I'm about to do this. I'm, you know, ending my time in California with this week being, um, you know, other than this wonderful interview with Heather, mostly a writing retreat for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm thinking about that. So I have like I her hike on up. I have um, St. Francis Perkins, um, who, uh, who's here, who is, you know, the FDR's, uh, who was the first um, woman who was the Secretary of um, Labor under FDR and wow. um, is the author of a lot of the policies that we have, like um, mm-hmm. Social Security and, mm-hmm. uh, and oh. workforce wow. work you know, all the work, work, workforce compensation. Um, And Mm. she did that and was a devout Episcopalian laywoman, And it was her desire to work for people who were living and working in impoverished conditions that, you know, fueled her journey. So I'm thinking about all of these strands of vocation. So that's a spiritual practice I'm doing Mm. right now is to literally take the stories and the pictures and the saints of my journey and to honor them and, in, yes. in my writing, to visualize them, to understand that we are in community together. That community yes. is, um, what we're doing has longevity, past, yes. present, and future. And that's an important spiritual practice for me, keeping me grounded, not just on what I do, but how there's continuity bigger right. than I am.
1: Right. Uh, there was a, a book I read for um, a class with Ali Lutz, who I'm going to have on here soon. Good. Um we read a book called The Feminist Ethic of Risk by Sharon Welch. And one of the images she uses is this, um, I mean, it's basically a reinterpretation of the great cloud of witnesses. If you ask me, it's like a web of love, a web of justice, a web of interconnectedness outside of time and space intergenerational, because if we don't realize that we're a part of something that's much larger than this immediate effort and this very individual effort at that, then like, yeah, we burn out. We get so overwhelmed with the injustice and the all of the heartbreak and the things that that want to be heard and paid attention to. And um, we can't do it all. Uh we can't do it all now. We've never been able to do it all, but we can join arms, like link up with generations before and after us, and like facilitate more growth after us yeah. rather than making them have to redo the same things, you know, we we can be thinking in that way.
0: Choosing that life-giving web instead of like a linearity. It's really, it's really, it's it's really life-giving. So
1: yeah. Oh, and I love that you have icons that are contributing to that. That's such a great idea and really inspiring to have images that you're maintaining that connection with. It's amazing. It helps, it helps me to understand more of uh, why icons speak to me and um, because I, I grew up Southern Baptist. We didn't have oh, I, any like why, yeah. This right. A- like icons or imagery or whatever, like wasn't a part of it, but it it has become a part of my personal piety and mm-hmm. um I'm that's helpful for me to be able to articulate why. I think it's um, it extends our imagination, my imagination at yeah. least. Yeah, to what we're a part of. Well, Sarah, you are such a gift. I'm so grateful that you made time to talk. I'm so grateful for the wisdom that you just offered. Um, If people wanted to reach out to you or ask questions about something they heard you say, or if they want to learn more about you, where would you direct them?
0: Sure. I have a blog that I keep. Um, It's called Small Points of Light. You can find it at harrisprice.com which is Sarah spell backward price oh i love h-a-i-s-p-r-i-c-e.com um so i do and and so you can contact me via via that blog or um or read things that i've written sermons reflections some other things so that's probably a great um platform for people to be able to connect up with and i look forward i would i welcome welcome the web of
1: conversation amazing amazing well thank you blessings on your writing retreat thank you I, very much yeah. thank you
0: for this invitation thank you for this gift that you give um, to others um, asking these questions and facilitating beautiful dialogues so thank you mm. for the gift that you are in so many ways
1: so much gratitude much love sarah take care you as well Bye. bye, bye.